We're very pleased to welcome to the program today an author who's mastered the art, providing the public with data that broadens the mind while it provides absorbing reading. I don't mind admitting I've been a fan of David Wallachinsky for decades. Mr. Wallachinsky's book, The 20th Century, is a reference we think everyone should have on their home bookshelves. But we feel the same way about numerous works he's co-authored, including The People's Almanac, Volumes 1 to 3, The Book of Lists, Volumes 1 to 3, and What Really Happened to the Class of 65. This weekend, Parade Magazine published Mr. Wallachinsky's annual review of the world's 10 worst dictators. We're honored to have him join us today to talk about this grim but important listing. David Wallachinsky, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thank you very much. I'm sure a lot of listeners who read their Sunday paper this weekend would like to learn more about some of these infamous leaders. So can we start by noting that you have a book out with exactly those details, titled Tyrants, the World's 20 Worst Living Dictators. And this is very available, is it not? Uh, Yes, it is. I certainly hope so, at any rate. (laughs) It does go into more detail, including a bit of the history of each of the countries, so you can see how it could develop into a dictatorship. Yes, I would like to add uh, that uh, you know the context you provide for each country's dictators very illuminating and, and very useful to explain how they got where they uh, they are today. Ah, thank you. Yeah, I uh, you know I feel that there's basically three kinds of dictators. One are the uh, inherited dictators, like uh, King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia, Kim Jong Il of North Korea. Uh, then you have what I call the you know the corporate dictators. Those are uh, men who slowly rise in power, uh, either in a military dictatorship or in a one-party state. Um, These are like the communist dictators. Hu Jintao of China would be a perfect example. And then there's the dictators that we hear the most about, which I call the entrepreneur dictators. And these are the ones who uh, build their dictatorship out of nothing, like uh, uh, Muammar al-Qaddafi of Libya or Fidel Castro of Cuba. Well, some of these men, and, and they all are men, are, are U.S. adversaries. Some are alleged to be among our best friends. Uh, a few a few are neither of those. But, but before we talk about individuals, can you give us a brief rundown of the whole the whole top ten this year? Well, I would say, yeah, well, you put it quite well, that some of them are our allies and some of them aren't. And that's because even though we like to think that our country always supports human rights and democracy, um, when it comes to, uh, when we come up against economic needs or desires, they usually uh, take first place over uh, human rights. Consequently, we have people like Hu Jintao of China, I have number four on the list, and King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia, number five. And as you said, there's also uh, some people who we, we work against, uh, the Ayatollah Khamenei of Iran, Kim Jong-il of uh, North Korea, and then there's some dictators that we just ignore completely. Well, we have limited time today, of course. I'd like to maybe to focus in on your top five choices, uh, starting with number one, Omar al-Bashir of Sudan. What, what makes him the worst of the worst? Uh, Omar al-Bashir, the, Sudan is the country that includes Darfur, uh, which gets a certain amount of press because of uh, you know, the tragedy happening there. Uh, at least 200,000 people killed. Um, you know, there, in, throughout the country of uh, Sudan, there's more than 5 million people who've been forced out of their homes. And uh, what I find frustrating is that uh, you never, you almost never hear about Omar al-Bashir, the man who's in charge of these, uh, these massacres. Uh, so I think he should get more press. Yes, I've noticed that, that, that uh, this Darfur matter is in the, almost the daily papers, but... Uh... 
Uh, Bashir really is the prime mover in this, is he not? Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, a certain amount of the killing is done by a militia group called the Janjaweed. Um, and this is a tactic which Bashir has used previously in other parts of Sudan, which is that uh, he funds and arms and supports an independent, a supposedly independent militia. That way, when the outside world you know, tries to criticize him, he says, well, it's not really us, it's not our army, but of course it is really. Well, the man you chose as the second worst is, is very well known to Americans, Kim Jong-il of North Korea. You point out that though he's somewhat accurately portrayed as a bizarre figure, he's nevertheless a, a wily politician. Can you tell us how he became this oddity of a hereditary leader in a communist state? Well, th this is the first time that in the communist government uh, leadership passed from father to son. Uh, Kim Jong-il's father, Kim Il-sung, was the original dictator of, of North Korea. And I think the key to uh, uh, the North Korean dictatorship is that it isn't really a communist country. It's more like uh, the ancient Confucianism, where you were supposed to honor the and trust 100% the leader who will take care of everything for you. And because it was the communists, in, uh, particularly from the Soviet Union, who put Kim, uh, Kim Il-sung in power and the Chinese communists, who put him in power, um, he was forced to take on this idea of communism. But really, his, the, the, the form of tyranny there in North Korea goes way, way back before the creation of communism. Well, can you talk about Kim's nukes and, and his repression of the North Korean people? There's other dictators who have more advanced uh, nuclear power, like, like the Chinese and, and uh, General Musharraf of Pakistan. Uh, but the power that Kim Jong-il has over his own people is unprecedented or you know, un unparalleled in the world. There is absolutely no connection with the outside world for the North Korean people. Um, they have radios in your home have to be set to the government channel. The tuners are set to the government channels. And there are member, you know, representatives of the government will come into people's homes to make sure that nobody is tampered with their radio. That's just one example of how controlling Kim Jong-il is. Well, third on your list, the Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran. Can you explain, first of all, why he's Iran's real leader, not the man we read so much about lately, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad? People don't realize that uh, the way the Iranian constitution works is that uh, even though there is an allegedly elected government, though it's really phony elections, that that elected government has no control over the uh, military in Iran, the nuclear program in Iran, and they can't even pass laws because above the elected government is an unelected uh, guardian council of 12 religious leaders, mullahs headed by the Ayatollah Khamenei, and they chose, they really chose Ahmadinejad to be their uh, president because he serves uh, as a lightning rod for criticism from the rest of the world, so that if he says something and, and it works, then, then the Ayatollah Khamenei and the others can take uh, uh, credit for it. But if, you know, like this nuclear saber rattling that Ahmadinejad does, it doesn't play so well then the Ayatollah Khamenei can step in and say, no, uh, you, you've got to calm down. That's not what we stand for. So it's like kind of a good cop, bad cop. And uh, they also chose uh, Ahmadinejad to be the leader because he comes from a humble background, unlike the religious of mullahs who uh, actually run the country, who come from elite families. Even though I've listed them as the third worst dictator, 
it's a terrible idea to bomb Iran because Iran is a country where there's, I would say, two-thirds of the population doesn't like their government. And if you bomb them or if we bomb them, you're going to just silence the entire opposition because when a foreign power bombs your country, everybody gathers around the leader no, much, no matter how much they hate them. You did mention in the book, which I was interested to learn, that Iran had opposed the Taliban in Afghanistan from the moment it took power and criticized our supposed allies, Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, for supporting that regime. And that despite that common ground, perhaps here with the U.S., the Iranian reformers were quite dismayed when George W. Bush called Iran part of the axis of evil. So in, in many ways, it seems we help some of these conservatives sometimes. The, the U.S. In, the, uh, invasion of Iraq was like a dream come true for the the dictatorship of Iran, because keep in mind that Iran had fought an eight-year war with Saddam Hussein, and uh, just one of the most awful wars since World War II in terms of the number of people who died, and they couldn't get uh, rid of Saddam Hussein, even though uh, the majority of the people in Iraq were Shiites, just like the people in Iran. So when uh, we invaded Iraq and overthrew Saddam Hussein, this was just just, you know, handing a gift to the Iranian dictatorship because it got rid of their most hated enemy, Saddam Hussein, and it put in power, through majority rule, a Shiite majority, just like the Shiites in Iran. From the Iranian point of view, American foreign policy uh, the last few years has been bizarre. Indeed. We're speaking with author David Wallachinsky. His annual list of the world's 10 worst dictators appeared this weekend in Parade magazine. All right, the the three men we've been discussing uh, so far have not been leaders the U.S. is friendly with, but the next two are. Uh, I think that few Americans really can probably name the man who's been leading China for a while now, but he's young and will be around for quite a while. Can you uh, can you brief us on Hu Jintao of China? Well, Hu Jintao is the head of the Chinese Communist Party, and he uh, was a man at the right place at the right time with the right friends, which is to say that there came a point where the Chinese communists decided that they needed younger people. And at almost every stage of his career, Hu Jintao has been the youngest person, the youngest provincial governor, the youngest uh, you know, vice chairman, etc., etc., etc. And he has consolidated his power. He has the three most powerful positions in China. Um, and you know, even the United States, even though we do huge business with China, and we're tremendously dependent on China for our, our economy, the United States State Department every year issues a human rights report on each country in the world. And our own State Department lists 22 different areas in which China abuses human rights. Uh, and this includes forced abortions, forced labor, torture, etc. So there's a real schizophrenia in our, our attitude toward uh, our government's attitude toward China. And I might say that, you know, one thing that's particularly disturbing about China and the Chinese dictatorship is that in the late 1970s, they made this decision, the Chinese communists, to open up their economy while keeping brutal suppression of freedom of uh, uh, expression and human rights. And it worked. The the outside world bought this, you know, the United States. Uh, Europe, we want to do business with them, and so we, we turn a blind eye to their human rights abuses. Well, now that is known in the world of dictators as the Chinese model, and it is being copied all over the world. Um, you open up your economy, but you don't open up freedom of expression or democracy. 
And I would even predict that that's probably what's going to happen in the next couple of years in Cuba. Yes, I find it fascinating to, that we take the opposite tack with Cuba. Uh, we claim that we need to shun them, and yet U.S. is claiming that trade with China is promoting freedom from citizens there, but it just hasn't materialized. Oh, yeah, right. Well, let's keep in mind that, uh, you know, the Cubans don't have much that we need. Sugar, you know, that's about it. And whereas the Chinese have cheap labor, uh, a huge consumer market, and they own a lot of our national debt. <laughs> and so uh, it's, it's, it's a bit cynical, this idea that somehow we, if we keep at it, they're going to open up uh, and, and become democratic. It doesn't look like that's the way it's going. Yeah, in China's case, there's, it's not just the U.S. government sort of turning a blind eye for repression, but you point out in your book, U.S. companies have actually aided China's use of censorship. Well, certainly in the, in the world of the Internet, you know, and some of the countries are now feeling guilty and apologizing. But the Chinese have set up uh, uh, extreme censorship of the Internet, blocking search engines so that you can't look up the word democracy, for example. And once again, they've been aided by American companies, and once again, the Chinese have been teaching other dictatorships how to censor the Internet. Well, in, Sa in Saudi Arabia, King Abdullah heads a ruling clan that grants no freedom of worship, no freedom of speech, no representative government, and no freedom of assembly. Uh, as you note in the book, they don't even bother to hold fake elections. Yet uh, the Saudis seem almost immune to criticism here. How, how are they doing this? PR? Uh, it's, to a certain extent it's PR, but it's even more than that. It's called oil. They have the largest oil um, uh, reserves in the world. You know, and, uh, you know I, I give the, the example I would give is, you know, I have number five, worst dictator in the world, uh, King Abdul of Saudi Arabia. Number six, General Fan Shui of Burma, who we've never heard of. Well, you know, Burma, which is a large country, uh, has awful, awful military dictatorship. But all they have that, that we need is peak. And so the United States, both under President Clinton and under President Bush, has uh, instituted a very effective uh, and complete economic boycott of Burma. Whereas we, you know, with Saudi Arabia, which has oil, um, President Bush has gone out of his way to be photographed holding hands with King Abdullah. Well, I'm telling you, if Burma had oil and Saudi Arabia had nothing but teak, our leaders would be holding hands with the Burmese generals and we would be treating uh, the Saudi royal family as the pariahs that they should be because they have an extremely repressive and uh, you know, viciously anti-Christian and anti-Jewish uh, uh, government. Uh, particularly in their uh, the textbooks that they use in schools. And keep in mind that in Saudi Arabia, it is illegal for a Saudi citizen to follow a religion other than Islam. Yes, yes. And we also should probably remind people that it was 15 Saudis that attacked the U.S. on September 11th. The mastermind was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, a Saudi, al-Qaeda's godfather, of course, Osama bin Laden. Yet after September 11th, the Bush administration let 140 Saudis fly home unquestioned, uh, by the FBI, it's quite a striking contrast to, you know, the literal hand-holding in a photo op. No kidding. <laughs> yes, you, you put it quite well. <laughs> well, at the close of your book, you, you thank your co-authors of 1980's The Book of List Number 2 for letting you include a list of the world's most repressive governments. Uh, since I have a copy of that, I took a look at it, and, and many of that original list, uh, like Chile, Bulgaria, Uruguay, Argentina, and South Africa, really have come quite a long way since 1980. And I imagine that uh, such places must give you hope for nations currently under bad dictators. Well, 
exactly, because back then when I did that first list, there were dictatorships all over South America and in Europe. Now um, there are no more dictatorships in South America, and in Europe we only have one left, which is Alexander Lukashenko of Belarus. Uh, so I do have hope, and you know, in Africa in particular, even though some of the worst dictators are in Africa, there's really been spreading democracy in much of that continent. Well, many Americans are frustrated that our government supports tyrants if it suits its purposes and will even put them in power and keep them there sometimes. Uh, what organizations do you recommend people seek out if they wish to affect some changes in these repressive regimes? I would suggest that they start paying attention uh, and uh, reading about joining Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, Reporters Without Borders. And I would also, uh, you know, in my utopian mind, uh, I would say that a long-term solution is to create what I would call a council of democracies, in which you have to have an actual democracy, have to have freedom of expression to join. There's about 117 countries like that right now. And those countries could then be encouraged to uh, promote trade amongst themselves. Uh, and I think in the long run, uh, that would be uh, an effective way of getting rid of not all, but many uh, uh, dictatorships. Well, th this feature in Parade Magazine has been running for, I think, five years now. That's right. I, I noticed that it's generated some follow-up questions about Hu Jintao and last year's parade. It, do you get a sense that public opinion moves against some of these men after you've illustrated how bad they've behaved? Uh, to a certain extent, but and then I also get a lot of emails of, you know, people complaining, our dictator is much worse than you <laughs> said he was. He, he shouldn't be 18, he should be 10. I get a lot of that from the Ethiopians in, in America, also the Chinese and uh, Cuban Americans. And I actually, I dropped Fidel Castro from the list this year because last July he, he turned over power. He's no longer in power. That's the only reason he's not on the list. One final question. What happened to your high school pal and co-author of What Really Happened to Class of 65, Michael Medved? <laughs> he's just swung to the right and off the, off the cliff. Ah, uh, yes. Well, I was on Michael's show uh, recently. <laughs> for, I'd never heard his show before. And I was a guest on his show uh, talking about dictators and, uh, and about George Bush, actually. Uh -huh. And, uh, well, you know, Michael, um, he took a turn to the right, and if I can be a bit cynical about it... Um, you know, being a, a, a radio talk show host and a spokesman for the right pays a lot better than, uh, you know, being a spokesman for the left. <laughs> and uh, he's doing very well, Michael. I imagine you didn't agree on Bush. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Parade Magazine just published our guest's annual review of the world's 10 worst dictators. We at Radio Parallax highly recommend that you read the book that preceded it, Tyrants, the World's 20 Worst Living Dictators. We'd like to thank you very much for speaking with us, David Wallachinsky. Thank you very much. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break.